Welcome to You Don't Even Like This Band, a podcast about bands you probably don't even like. We hope you don't know this one. With your hosts, Adam Todd Brown, Andy Sell, and Travis Clark. Welcome to episode two of the Steve Earle season of the Unpops Music Podcast, aka Copper Pod Road, aka Copper Road Road Head, aka (laughs) I Pod All Right. I think I said that one last time, aka the Low Podcast, uh, aka El Podazon. I'm Adam Todd Brown. Who else is here? I'm Andy. Andy! There it's it so good to see you, Andy. It's been forever. How have you been? Are you still talking about that hillbilly with the heroin problem? Answer your mother father. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh, cool, cool. That's, that's what great. I've been up to. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's, what's new with you? Well, your father, mother, <laughs> and I have been talking. I had to go see the podiatrist ever since I had my problem with my heel. and But it's better now. I'm not using the cane as much. But I am tempted to start walking on all fours because I only eat raw meat now. Hey, isn't, uh, isn't Travis supposed to be here? I'm Travis fucking Clark. Oh, shit. There's Travis. There he is. Oh, wow. That was weird. Cause it Were was you just... doing a narrative where my mother father was bitten by a werewolf? A little bit. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering. I was wondering. That was pretty good. Also, podiatrist. Good good pull there. Podiatrist. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a podcast. Huh? Yeah, that's All where right. it came from. We're doing, we're doing a podiatrist is somebody who treats podcasts. <laughs> well, we, we need one of those. We need one of those. We could, yeah, yeah, we could use one for sure. Because this podcast is sick, right? Speaking of sick, I think there's someone here who wants to talk to Andy. No, we're not. Come on. Oh, oh hi, Andy. It's How syphilis bear. It's been so Come long, on, my friend. You're going to do this to me twice, like back it's to so back nice. with the mother-father character. Oh, come on, method. Andy. Finally, I don't have to wear a mask and I can give you a hug. Uh, you know, I will say, here's what I'll say. Yes. Is that if you look at pictures of Steve Earle now or even uh-huh. watch him in The Wire or on Treme, uh-huh. Steve Earle looks like how I picture Steve <laughs> <laughs> That is not wrong. And you have to expect Syphilis Bear to come up on a podcast about Steve Earle. Yeah, you have to. He has done more sport fucking and intravenous drug using (laughs) than most people his age who are still alive ever, ever could have dreamed. I'm pretty sure syphilis bear is the title of his next record. (laughs) I'm Steve Earle. This next song's called syphilis bear goes out to my buddy. Andy. he's he's definitely, he's definitely straightened up. A little bit since the events of what we're talking about on these first couple episodes. This next song's called Syphilis Bear. It's about my my bus driver. <laughs> so when we left off, Steve Earl was high on mushrooms and staring at a highway exit sign. And that becomes the inspiration for the name of his second album, Exit Zero, which he ban- began recording in December 1986. He saw this record as kind of an extension of his war with MCA because before he even recorded it, Guitar Town was huge and there's this executive that he is at war with during this whole book who I haven't named. Again, we're leaving you lots of meat on the bone if you want to read this book. But this executive is like, oh, hey, you're not even going to have time to write your second album because you're going to be touring so much. And Steve Earle was like, oh, I get it. You want me to record songs written by other artists. 
so you can control me a little more. So he was like, watch, I will write my album on the road. And he did. The band literally got off a tour bus, gets into the studio and recorded with no break, which uh, that would suck. Yeah, that's not the most ideal circumstance to be creative. No, no. But he did turn out a a pretty solid album. Uh, Exit Zero is not bad. I enjoyed it. He broke with some unwritten country rules when he made this. Apparently at the time in country music, it was just expected that every album that came out of Nashville would be recorded with the same small batch of session musicians. And the idea was to give listeners a more cohesive or consistent listening experience. It's like, who the fuck wants that? Yeah, I feel like this was part of the issue with what which led to the outlaw country mo- movement yeah. too. Was that was there was this kind of stuff and people wanted to re- record at their own studios and yeah, yeah. It's like it's like yeah, it's just homogenous. It's just they're trying to create a homogenous. You know, it's it's everything commercial, especially in the eighties. Everything commercial yeah. in the eighties was just like oh, everything has to be kind of the same. So again, Reagan. Well, who knew? Who knew? Yeah. And uh, Steve Earle demanded that uh, he be able to record it with his touring band, the Dukes. He also demanded that they be named alongside him on the album cover. And he uh, wanted that exit sign to be the cover photo, which was also very controversial at the time, because if you were a country artist making an album coming out of Nashville, you put a headshot on your album cover. It's just what people did. They worked 30 days straight to record this album. Steve Earle hands it in, and the label had some feelings. One, they said he couldn't call it Exit Zero. Two, he had to use a headshot instead of the highway sign on the cover. And three, he couldn't put the band name on the cover because it would put him in the band category at the Grammys instead of male artist, and then he'd be up against Alabama and would have no chance of winning. Other than that, they're perfectly fine with the album as (laughs) handed in. So just some minor notes, no big deal, nothing. It's still the same. You know. Yeah. Steve, can- love the record, love the direction, really like the passion, do none of it. <laughs> I got a question. Can you change your name, uh, Steve? Uh, can you change your name from Steve Earl to... Uh, I, got, I got nothing. I, wow. I had a whole thing. Look, I, I get stuck on the names. This is my problem. This is what I I love about Andy is that the pauses are worth the payoff. I'm not quick with the proper (laughs) nouns. So uh, despite their objections, if you go look at the album, it's got the exit sign cover. It's credited to Steve Earle and the Dukes. It's called Exit Zero. He was just like, fuck you. I'm going to put the album out the way I want to put it out. I'm going to admit that this is a dumb question, but the sign doesn't say the real sign that Mushroom Steve looked at doesn't say Steve Earl and the Dukes, right? Like that. No, that, no. Cause that would have been just too intense on mushrooms to see that. <laughs> well, can you also imagine fighting the record executive on that? Where it's like, look, I know that the sign has your band's name on it already, but we don't want the Dukes on there. We, we so ex- we're, we're going to hire a crew to go and paint over the sign. We accept the coincidence, but it's nothing more than that. Let's move on. Uh, I'm including this just because I love the quote from Steve Earle. As soon as they get done recording, he goes back on the road. So he's touring so much, he ends up having trouble sleeping at home, which became an issue with whatever woman he was living with at the time. And uh, this is a quote from Steve Earle. I tried to get her to go brrr until I fell asleep. She wouldn't do it. Is that, <laughs> is that like, like the, an air conditioner? The- <laughs> 
I, I thought it was maybe the 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 truck engine or the the van. Well, like yeah, what? the bus. He's on a okay. tour bus. Okay. Okay. I I I mean, I'm sure it's that, Steve, and not all the cocaine and heroin you've been doing that threw your sleep cycles off. I, what I no. need is just a, a woman to sound like an engine that then I can sleep. Uh, I can't. Cocaine, yeah. I can't sleep next to a human. I need to believe that in some way she is actually a machine. I like the idea that uh, Steve Earle is a Blade Runner. You know, he's just trying to find, you know, he's other only, replicants, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he, needs, he needs to be with a replicant. Yeah, if she can make that noise, then I know she's a robot, And then, but then I have to kill her because it's my job. I also, see, I'm a troubadour. I want to see Steve Earle getting the Voight Kampf test at the beginning of Blade Runner. <laughs> In the Brian James role, I want to see him murder that guy. The Leon, he's, yeah. he's asking him about finding a tortoise on its back and seeing yeah. what he does. <laughs> I want more life, fucker. So Exit Zero was released in May 1987. I guess it's even less of a country album, but I don't know. I still think this and Guitar Town are kind of straight ahead country. There's a few songs on Exit Zero that are a little more rock oriented, but not really. I also think there are a few songs on Exit Zero that are more country than a few songs on yeah. Guitar Town. I think that I think that he's trying to do a little bit of both on both records. I mean, he's got lap steel on both records, right? There's yeah. steel guitar in both of these. But he gets a little balladier, as I remember it, on Exit Zero. Or am I think am I just was that just my impression? Now that you're right, there's there's some there's some ballads on it. It's another really strong album. What's interesting is we're arguing whether it's more country than the first one, but it came out the same week as albums by Randy Travis and Dwight Yoakam. And what happened at the time is those two albums uh, entered the country charts and Steve Earls entered the adult oriented rock charts. So country at the time did not consider Steve Earls exit zero album to be a country album, which is bonkers. If you go listen to it. Again, I feel like this executive has something to do with this. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing is MCA throughout most of his time there just refused to really promote his album. So they didn't sell that great. Like usually around three to 400,000 if it was uh, a one that sold a lot and usually closer to 100, 200,000. But he's also putting out these records that are, and I don't have a ton of experience in in. in country records but he's putting out more rock length records like they're short records they're almost yeah. you know they're less than 40 minutes but both guitar town and exit zero but they don't have they're not like ramones records where like every song is like two minutes like yeah some of the songs are kind of long but the whole runtime is almost ep length more than lp length yeah he w he was definitely breaking away from country music in a lot of ways and it made for a bunch of weirdness where if he had a song that was doing well on country radio rock radio would stop playing his music for a while and then if he had a song that was doing good on the rock charts country radio would stop playing his songs there was also a very weird controversy <laughs> where i love this Foreign car dealerships started complaining because he has a song on the album called Sweet Little 66 that has a line that says, so when your Subaru's over in your Honda's history, I'll be blasting down some back road with my baby next to me in my Sweet Little 66, which is a Chevelle for the record. And you would think that would not have that much impact on his record sales, but car dealerships spread around a lot of ad money and they 
all called and complained, at least people who owned uh, foreign car dealerships. But in 80, was this 86, you said? Yeah. That's when it, it came out in 87. I would imagine 1987 country listeners are not buying Subarus or Hondas. I don't think that that's anything that's in danger of happening. Well, remember, this was getting played on rock radio, too. So that could have yeah. been part of it well this is also before like the movie roger and me came out so yeah (laughs) it's just like before there was all this consciousness about the i don't know what year did the movie gung-ho come out that was i think four yeah that was earlier that was 84 85 something like that but this is around the time when uh roger rabbit came out i don't know if that factors (laughs) into anything that you're thinking Album, also critically acclaimed. It got Steve Earl lumped in with this uh, genre of music people were referencing at the time called Heartland Rock, which was somehow inspired by Bruce Springsteen, who is famously from the Midwestern state of New Jersey. Mm, Well, New Jersey, here's what I'll say about New Jersey. They do have hillbillies. They fucking have hillbillies. This is uh, one... And hill joeys and hill fills (laughs) and... (laughs) You go out you go out to the Pine Barrens, man, it's a different country. And uh, yeah, that's all I'll say about New Jersey. So one reviewer summed up this genre as being one that's most preoccupied with one question. What happens to the people in a factory town when the factory shuts down? And goddamn is that the most precise summary of Bruce Springsteen music? I think I've ever heard. Well, there was a factory, a factory in this town. town. Wow, that was chaos. <laughs> oh my God, raise your hand when you want to do a Springsteen impersonation. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Springsteen hierarchy. That's my bad. <laughs> we both we got, both got spontaneous Springsteenism. I, I couldn't I couldn't help myself. I was bitten by a Springsteen in my youth, and I ever since then every full moon. I sing I, about empty factories. I just drank a Springsteen's blood. That's <laughs> that's what did it. Yeah, that was like yeah Springsteen, and that's you know where they, I think Tom Petty's Heartland Rock. Yeah, as well, and, and John Mellencamp and yeah. Steve Bob Earl. Seger getting there with the Heartland. Yeah, they're yeah. working Bob hard. Seger, yeah. like a rock shit like yeah. that. I saw Seger oh, wait, in concert. And I, I just sang the, so the Stater Brothers commercial. That was not a Bob Seger song at all. What? I sang a local. <laughs> <laughs> Grocery store hat. <laughs> oh my god! Wow! Wow! Sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, also Fogarty, right? Centerfield. I would consider Centerfield to be like yeah. a Heartland Rock record, yeah. maybe. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, from the notoriously midwestern state of California. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's. <laughs> but from it's, the south of California, that's yeah. why their voices sound like that. California is a flyover state. If you're flying somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah, if you're flying to Washington. Yeah. From California. Sure. So, yeah, so so there was this big debate whether Steve Earle was country enough. It all comes to a head when the next batch of Country Music Award nominees are announced. He doesn't get any nominations. He was also bothered that the Grand Ole Opry wouldn't accept him, even though Randy Travis became a member almost immediately. Okay, but here's the thing about that, is that Grand Ole Opry is like a famously staunchly conservative Nashville sound gatekeeping institution. Like him being upset that he wasn't recognized by them is like if I were mad that I didn't get asked to do the Burbank Comedy Festival. You didn't get asked? Adam and I got asked. Oh, wow. 
This We're is headlining. I'm about it. Well, that's because you guys are the Randy Travises and I'm the Steve Earle. Like, oh, I, I don't like that analogy. At I, all. I don't like it either. <laughs> you know, I, Randy Travis. I I had a an interaction with him once. Nice guy. I mean, yeah, this I, was before he went crazy and like stripped naked and went out in the middle of the street or whatever, drunk. But yeah. no, that's you're thinking of Glenn Campbell. No, Randy Travis Randy had a Travis. Randy Travis had a stroke. No, Randy Randy Travis also didn't he also go out and like, a, uh, he got you, drunk and you know we don't have to mischief. We don't have to settle this debate right now. <laughs> all right. all I'm help. saying is, all I'm saying is, like I, you know, it's or maybe a better analogy is to be like, if I was like, well, I never became a regular at the comedy store. It's like, well, of course not. I talk shit about that place. I never went there. Uh, you know, I mean, Steve Earle. I'm just saying it bothered him. Yeah. Like, I mean, well, I, yeah. I, of course, like, it. of course, he knew it was a conservative institution, but he's also making some of the most acclaimed country albums of his time. That, and that half the country's not considering to be country. His record label is more like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's more politics. It's not like country fans were like that. Steve Erlang country. Like this was like internal political shit with record labels and radio stations. Yeah, fair. And part of it was him. He's just an abrasive personality. Yeah. Like, like the way people describe him, it seems like he just takes over a room when he walks in and not always for the best. Yeah. And he's doing that while also being unshowered, famously addicted to heroin and devout Marxist. Yes. So, and always in some form of, Pending divorce. Yeah. So, yeah. so constantly. Grand, yeah. Grand Ole Opry probably not. Look, the Grand Ole <laughs> Opry was just a marriage him. that didn't work out. That's how he should look at it. <laughs> not at first. We'll get there. So, uh, around this time, one of the other ways he breaks from country music norms is he starts talking about drugs a whole lot in his interviews, and country music doesn't like that at all. But he talked about it as if a thing he, it was a thing he'd done in the past and survived. And no, 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 no. <laughs> He was super duper high most of this time to the point that his bandmates started kind of separating from him on the road because he was just high all the time and unpleasant over it, apparently. Hmm. And it well, uh, I don't know heroin to make people kind. Yeah. And I think he was probably doing a little cocaine around this hmm. time. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going to say that's probably more like, I mean, he should just stick to the weed and the and the mushrooms. Yeah. Like I do. Yeah. So, uh. This makes for a, a really crazy tour story because he was, I mean, he was obviously using drugs at this point also. And uh, during a stop in Virginia, Steve and the woman he was uh, cheating on his new wife of three months with. Okay, of course. Decided they wanted to, well, in his defense, he met this woman first. So, uh <laughs> That's they Southern decided law right there. It's just first come, first <laughs> yeah. serve, you know? Yeah, it's like if it happens out of state, doesn't count. Yeah. Same thing. Yep, I'm sorry, same honey, thing. I'm allowed to do this because I knew her before I knew you. <laughs> Grandfathered in. <laughs> so uh, they decided they wanted to spend a night in a hotel while the rest of the band boarded the bus and headed to Atlanta. And at this point in history, Steve Earle traveled with two bags, uh, two guitar bags. One had a change of clothes and a shaving kit in it. And the other he called the Keith Richards bag. That had, quote, everything illegal in it, end quote, including guns. And the thing he didn't he didn't call the Keith Richards bag the other, you know, <laughs> the one with the shaving stuff in it. And here's how I know Steve Earle spent a night of fucking and then didn't shower before going to the airport. <laughs> because it's not until he gets to the airport and tosses the bag onto the conveyor belt that he realizes, oops. 
not the bag with my change of clothes, which he surely would have noticed had he changed clothes before <laughs> heading to the airport. Uh, he realizes, nope, that's the one with the drugs and the guns in it. And uh, sure enough, the x-ray machine picks up that gun and he ends up getting arrested. And uh, reminder, he's got a show that day. Which, when I was touring with Portugal the Man, I did miss a bus that was supposed to take me to another show. But I didn't miss that show. I just paid way too much money for a 45-minute airplane flight. Oof. Oof. Yeah, oof is right. So he gets arrested. He ends up getting to this show where he's opening for Roseanne Cash. But by the time he arrived, it was so late that she had to just go on. And so now she's opening for him. That's great. And uh, she was not happy about it. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Here's what I love about this story. First of all, all of it. But second of all, (laughs) when you're traveling a lot, especially touring and carrying two bags, it's a lot to carry. And if you've ever seen Steve Earle, modern Steve Earle, he's clearly not a man who shaves. He's a very long beard. So it seems to me at some point he went, you know, I don't need the clean clothes and the razor anymore. I just need the Keith Richards bag. Like he clearly just pairs it down. That's the thing. The shaving kit was guns too. <laughs> so it's kind say, of a my, lose, kind of a lose, lose situation. My favorite part of this story is the guns. <laughs> Why does he have guns? He's got a very complicated relationship with guns that also comes up in this book. He, for a long time was an NRA guy. Yeah. And then, oh. and then eventually was like, no, I'm wrong. I'm very wrong. Look, guns I, are I, bad. I, I get it. I suppose if I knew that the FBI had a file on me from when I was a teenager. And you have to imagine. You factor in the drug paranoia. And you have to you have to take into account there's a big difference between being a, a liberal and a Marxist. Yeah. Like yeah. Y- you think you hate the government, but you just hate Trump. Steve Earle hates the fucking government. Mm-hmm. And that was his thinking behind having a gun was that argument a lot of Second Amendment rights people make, which is, what if the government gets tyrannical? And they that's the thing is... It's, they have. It's right. <laughs> they have. They regularly, especially, you know, in his lifetime, assassinated people yeah. for having different opinions, you yep. know? And also... And being influential about it. He's 32 years old around this time, if my math is right. That means for 20 years now... He has been hooked on heroin and had an FBI file about him since like the age of 12-ish. Yeah, yeah I wonder been... why he's not more successful. <laughs> what, what's with all these obstacles in his way? Where are they coming from? Yeah, also just he got, he just, the he gets out of jail. Like he has, he brings guns to an airport and still manages to make it to the show. That's astounding to me. Well, yeah, Certain... he had bail money by this point. Yeah, well. yeah but also too, it's kind of like, you know, Having a gun in the South is kind of like speeding in Montana. It's a fix-it ticket on the spot. You know, they're just going like, here you go. It's fine. Go on. Yeah. Don't do it again, Mr. Guy. And he's also famous. He's yeah. white. Yeah. So things are going to go all right for him. So a uh, lot of turmoil around this point in his life. Uh, yet another divorce. No. Uh, what? Why? How? I don't believe it. He had a falling out with his manager because Steve refused to record a jingle for Budweiser. Even though he wouldn't be identified as the artist, they were offering $80,000. But Steve always vowed to not do jingles, and his manager accused him of fucking with his income over it. This is another fantastic story. (laughs) All of this is happening when they're on tour. Last stop of the tour, a show in Kansas. He decided he was, one, going to hitchhike back to Los Angeles, which... 
you're rich. Why get murdered? But first, he decided to make an impromptu trip to the Kansas home of one of his idols, massively overrated author William Burroughs. And now the guns make sense. Yes, yes. Burroughs was a gun guy? I Didn't he shoot his wife with a gun? <laughs> okay, that doesn't make him a gun guy. <laughs> There's a difference between a gun user and a gun you know, guy. Look, you shoot one wife with one gun and suddenly I'm a gun guy. So he knocks on William Burroughs door. William Burroughs fucking answers the door because he's living in Lawrence, Kansas. So, of course, people can just walk up to your stupid door. I've been to Lawrence. I did a show in Lawrence in a basement of a bar that the bartender called a criminal bar. Oh, that sounds nice. And I'm pretty sure they used to do dog fights in that basement of that bar. <sighs> Typical Lawrence. Yep. So William Burroughs opens the door. Steve explains how much of an influence William Burroughs had been on his life and how important all of his work was to him. William Burroughs listens to every word. The entire spiel doesn't say anything. And then when Steve Earl stops talking, William Burroughs says, fuck off and just shuts the door in his face. That is my favorite William Burroughs moment, I believe. <laughs> if Steve Earl had just been like, look, I do heroin, too. <laughs> yeah, he probably William, didn't want to share. Yeah, William Burroughs would have been like, hey, come on in. Do you have any guns? Yeah, Steve Earl just left that part of the story off where William Burroughs asked for heroin. And he's like, I don't like you that much, man. <laughs> I don't share that. Steve Earle was arrested again, New Year's Eve, 1987, when he and his guitar tech, this is a way more elaborate story in the book, but they end up getting in a fight because his guitar tech refuses to stop hitting on this woman who works at the bar, who is also clearly the girlfriend of the security guard at the bar. So the security guard is seeing this and the friend won't stop Steve Earl and this friend getting a fight over it. And it turns out that security guard is also an undercover cop. She sure. comes out and chokes Steve Earl out with his nightstick. And then Steve Earl gets charged with aggravated assault. Now, this is the thing I don't get is it's like Steve Earl was trying to stop the dude from hitting on your girlfriend. Why are you beating Steve Earl up? Because he's a fucking cop and they're stupid. Oh, oh, I f yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Cops are. Yeah. yeah. What do you want me to say? Okay, good point. Good point. So, uh. Even I though this have tried to apply logic to a fucking cop <laughs> brain. So this incident leaves Steve Earle's voice a little more gravelly than usual, which is saying a whole fucking lot. He did play a show the next night, though, where he debuted a new song. That song, Copperhead Road. God damn, is that song a banger? It's so great. It's such, it's it's so such good. a good song. But not long after that, though, a bunch of infighting led to Steve firing most of his touring band with that. He went to England for a few months to produce an album for a band called Bible and to get even more strung out on heroin. Travis, it looked like you were about to say something. No, I, I've never heard of Bible. I have not either. He produces a few bands throughout this book that I kind of want to go back and listen to. He apparently at, at one point around the 90s or 2000s started this production team called the Twang Trust and they oh. produced a Linda or a Lucinda Williams album that won a Grammy. Oh, and man. Steve Earle actually won a producer of the year Grammy that year. It's called uh, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Huh. Is the name of the album. And I've heard it's very good. I just had no idea Steve Earle produced it. Wow. So, so yeah, he, he 
did production work for a few different bands. And I, after reading this again, I kind of want to check those bands out because that's way easier now than it was right. in 2000, whatever, when I read this book. So uh, he's in super bad shape when he returns to the U.S. because uh, drugs were apparently hard to come by in Nashville at the time. So he just had to detox and hope for the best. Oh, and also someone tried to hire a hitman to kill him. Hold on. This is reminding <laughs> me of another story. What is this Ooh. reminding me of? I don't know. Mm, it'll well, come to me. Well, I guarantee Guns N' Roses probably didn't come up in the other story <laughs> you're talking about. Hi, Axel. Wait a second. <laughs> so what happened is the ex of one of Steve's various girlfriends apparently approached a Guns N' Roses roadie to inquire about paying him to kill Steve Earl. And that roadie just went to Steve and told him about it. And the police were notified. I should explain one of Steve Earl's girlfriends who we'll talk about on a later episode, the A&R person who discovered Guns N' Roses. Good news, guys. I really like your band. I really want to sign you. But before I do, could one of your roadies kill my ex? Here's the thing. I, I think that the A&R, this, the fact that this girlfriend was an A&R person who discovered Guns N' Roses is immaterial. Because a lot of I feel like that's irrelevant because a lot of people don't know this. But at one time, Guns N' Roses roadies were basically just the dark web like if you wanted someone killed if you wanted crack if you you uh, you found yourself a guns and roses roadie and th- and they took care of it for you it's very uncharacteristic for this one guns yeah. and roses roadie to turn in fact i think at one point you could just get duff mckagan to kill someone for you that's true i know that for a fact or tracy yeah. guns after he left guns and roses he was like listen la guns isn't taking off for me i will kill someone for you yeah Guns and roadies, they call them. Guns Guns and roadies. Guns and roadies. It also seems like a real lazy hit job where you're like, God, I want I want this guy dead. This band is called Guns and Roses. Maybe they have guns. I'll ask their roadie if he'll kill someone. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we just got roses. All out of guns. Damn it. Uh, check check Steve's Keith Richards bag, though. (laughs) Keith Richards bag. I feel like there's some guns in there. So despite all this chaos. He still manages to find time to sit down and write the songs that would appear on his next album, Copperhead Road. So the moral of the story, hire someone to potentially kill Steve Earle, and he will make a great album in response. Mm -hmm. It is a great album. When all of this debate as to whether Exit Zero was country or rock was going on, Steve Earle at one point literally comes out and says, well... I'm going to make a heavy metal bluegrass album next then. And that's kind of what Copperhead Road is. I concur. Yeah. If nothing else, it's a metal country album. It's for metal sure. influence. It's, it's an arena rock. It sounds a lot more like, you know, the Southern rock infused, like alt country stuff. Now. Yeah. Like it's very drive by truckers in places. True. But it yep. has, it still has that bluegrass rhythm mm-hmm. oh, and, yeah. oh, and yeah. uh, pacing. Yeah. Well, Copperhead Road is written on a mandolin. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which he could barely play at the time, which I love that when someone's like, oh, yeah, I'll try something on this instrument. And they just write the best fucking song of their career. Like, hey, yeah, by Outkast. First song Andre 3000 ever wrote on guitar. Oh, wow. wow. And you can tell when you listen to those chords. But uh, yeah, Copperhead Road. It's a really good album. So good. It's so good. And it's uh, it's the point where he stops really being country it's it's far more rock influence from this point on but it's it's almost like a proto sons of anarchy soundtrack like sons of anarchy didn't even exist yet 
but the the art, the album artwork and everything just looks like Kurt, Kurt Sutter would see that and go, I need to make a show about bikers around this. Well, I do want to say I don't know if you if this if you listen to Exit Zero on Spotify, but the first track of Exit Zero, Nowhere Road, it, there's like a side a subtitle to it that says "From Black Dog Soundtrack." Yeah, which is a 1998. This is the only movie I can think of that is called Black Dog. Is a 1998 Patrick Swayze trucker action movie. 1998? Yes, exactly. So, and this and this song That's... is on that movie. So it's like Spotify retroactively included oh, the from the yeah. Black Dog soundtrack. Thing. I mean, it didn't. It, this song wasn't written for the soundtrack, but for some reason, it's significant enough to be yeah that, to be included in the Spotify track of it. And I just think that's fu- so. Even on Exit Zero, he's doing stuff that you know yeah. could be Sons of Anarchy type shit. It's a very Vietnam heavy album. Like the True. song Copperhead Road especially is about uh it's about a Vietnam vet who comes home to no job prospects and decides to start selling weed to make money, inspired by a true story about a woman who got arrested for selling weed in the Appalachian region and uh she started doing it after her sons came home from Vietnam with seeds. There's also a good Jack Ketchum novel called Cover that's about a Vietnam vet growing weed who goes a little nuts starts killing people but it, it, i i just love these narrative songs i love these like storytelling songs copperhead road uh week of living dangerously off the previous record yeah. uh it's i feel like that's where he's really shining is when he's doing these even on this record esmeralda's hollywood yeah yeah so good. Well, that that's on that's on the hard way Oh, that's no, you're on, right. You're that right. is on the hard way. Sorry, yes. that is on the hard yeah. way. Yeah. There's a song on this album called Back to the Wall mm. that I like a lot, which is about a guy living on a, on trains. And it almost has an ACDC vibe to it when it starts. It has that like, like it's about to be back in black kind of, vibe. not that. Um, yeah. That has like, a. <laughs> you're expecting Brian Johnson to come in. I was just going to say, and and then, I mean, I don't want to go through just track, 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 but Devil's Right Hand is about guns, and it it speaks to his weird relationship with with guns as well, which we've talked about a little bit. Yeah, I don't remember. That became a hit for someone. I want to say Hank Williams Jr., but uh, yeah, someone, someone else recorded Devil's Right Hand and had sort of a hit with it. This is also the point in history, oh, we should have, fresh off two seasons of a corn podcast, we can't leave out that Copperhead Road opens with bagpipes. So it's almost certainly Jonathan Davis's favorite Steve Earle song. It's I, I got to know, why didn't Korn have Steve Earle on their Unplugged? I know. Yeah. I feel like they missed an opportunity there to have, you know, heavy metal bluegrass, baby. Fucking I would listen to Korn. Pipes, play Corn Per Head Road. <laughs> Corn Per Head Road. This is also the point in history where Steve Earle just openly starts doing heroin in front of people. There's a, a story about him when they're mixing the album. He just pulls heroin out of his pocket and snorts it, puts it away. It's a quote from Tony Brown, the guy he fought with at the Oak Ridge Boys Mansion. I'd ne- and that's the other thing. That guy that uh, he called short, still with him at this point in his career. Stays with him the entire fucking well, yeah, time. Well, yeah, he's driving the bus. No, that's Dan Gillis. Different guy. <laughs> uh, this is a quote. I'd never physically seen him do anything, and there it was, and it just sent chills up my spine. The fact that he just got that comfortable to pull it out in the studio. I confirmed he is talking about heroin. Uh, okay, I, I was going to say, I was wondering that could be about something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is really always weird when you see someone just pull out heroin or cook heroin in front of you. It's like, like you're, you know, like, oh, you're not 
this isn't you're not you're not cool. trying to hide this from me. This <laughs> no. is you just yeah. like I'm cool with seeing you do this. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, he was he was high for the majority of the recording of this album. And in his defense, I'm high for the majority of the recordings of these podcasts, but not on heroin. That's the go. big difference, you know? Yeah. I'm uh, he, I'm all spun up on uh, sugar, but that's about it. Right? right. Weed for me. Weed for me and nicotine. I'm chewing nicotine gum. Oh, nice. Oh. So around this time, in the name of treating his heroin addiction, he started seeing a doctor named George Nicopolis. And uh, here's the thing about Dr. George. He is famous for one thing. He's the doctor who prescribed Elvis all of those pills in the last few years of his life. Seems like a safe choice. Sure. I mean, it worked out good for Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. He entered witness protection over it. Uh, This is a quote from Steve Earle. For me, going to see Dr. Nick was just like going to Graceland. I went for the same reason. Then I got the cough mixture, too, which was a bonus. I was going to get dope from somewhere. God, can you imagine being like, oh, hi, Dr. Nick. I'm such a huge fan. It's so (laughs) I feel I, I just being in your presence makes me feel closer to the king. What you did for Elvis's career, can you do for mine? <laughs> is the cough mixture, is that? It's called, he's referring to something called Tushinex, which oh. was, uh, I guess, available at the time. And it's got codeine. Yeah, it's codeine it. cough syrup, right? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that he's what tr- they make, like purple drink and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, purple drink. <laughs> he real man, drive-by truckers, he predicted that whole genre. Uh, purple drink, lean, I think they call it also. Wow. He's really a cutting edge guy. So the sessions for the album went very well, though, like very smooth. He hands the album in. And of course, MCA Records is split. Half of them think it is one of the best things they've ever heard and that they'll be able to promote it in areas that normally don't fuck with country music at all. And the other half is like, yeah, that's the problem. We want nothing to do with this, which is crazy because it's such a good album. I also like, go ahead. M- MCA was just never on the same page about it. It's like it's a leadership and culture problem over there. It's not a Steve Earle problem. It's a half of these guys on one side got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Sell, business anthropologist. He can go through, <laughs> tell you what was wrong with your country and your co- and your company 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you why Chuck E. Cheese went under. It's that the band members didn't gel. If they just let the band talk to each other. If anybody from Blockbuster is listening, I got some advice for you. <laughs> and so, once again, MCA refuses to really promote this album. The title track the year it came out was the most requested song at rock radio stations all across the country. And MCA refused to push it to top 40 radio, which had they done that and it broke there, Steve Earle would have been significantly bigger probably even today than he is. It's just nuts to me because I just I don't remember ever hearing this song and I feel like this is a song I would have remembered hearing. Yeah. And it's it's because it's an incredible song. It's also a song that like once you hear it, you kind of go, oh, that's just like always been part of the fabric of America. Like that. When was there ever a time where this song didn't exist? Yeah. Yeah. It's it is. an If people listening to this haven't heard it, fucking pause this and go listen to the song Copperhead Road. It's very, very good. And it's also too like wherever you're listening to it, we'll have millions of plays like it's a song that people like. You know? Yeah. Now, to give you an idea what Steve Earle's life was like around this time, here's what his answering machine greeting was in 1998 or 1988. This is Steve. 
probably out shooting heroin, chasing 13-year-old girls and beating up cops. But I'm old and I tire easily, so leave me a message and I'll get back to you. I only probably have a all very with, accurate. Yeah, there's only one part of that I really have a problem with. The beating up cops? Uh, no, just why the put shooting that on heroin? A, why put that on a message? You know, like oh, it's sure. incriminating. Yeah, that's true. Because now you could just go arrest him for exactly. any number of I, things. Yeah, the thing about this is like, why did you have to age the girls? Like, you know, <laughs> it is, he's trying to be, the only reason to say that is to be willfully transgressive and to like try to get people. Obviously, if you're out chasing 13 year old girls, you're not leaving that as your message, you know? So I don't, it's not like I'm like, oh, Steve Earle, what a fucking monster because yeah. he's a pedophile but it's like just you know sometimes you don't gotta be edgy about it steve all right yeah. so we could redo it hi this is steve i'm probably out doing a few errands uh helping the youth of the neighborhood and uh maybe chasing 33 year old girls <laughs> chasing chasing women of illegal consent and age Here, but here's still a, chasing them here's a crazy detail by this point in Steve Earle's life and career, he was paying $4,000 a month in 1980s money for alimony and child support to his various ex-wives. And in the fall of 1988, was informed that he'd fathered a third child with a woman he had a one-night stand with on tour. Yeesh. I mean, how? How is he footing this bill? How is he handling this? Well, he was making good money. I guess, but this is a lot. I mean, this on top of the drugs is what I'm saying. Like, drugs yeah. aren't cheap. Well, the drugs weren't, I don't think he was as deep, like, he was addicted, but I don't think he was, like, $600 a day addicted like he eventually got yeah. to be. But he did have to tour behind this album without, it was the first time he toured without being able to detox and get clean from opiates first. Well, you never know till you try, you know? Yeah, and it, it led to uh, some weird situations like one night in Canada when he demanded that someone be flown in just to bring him a bottle of Tushinex cough syrup to ease his withdrawals from heroin. Cost of that flight, $1,200, because the guy refused to not fly first class, which I would also refuse to not fly first class if I'm f smuggling Tushinex into Canada for you. Yeah, yeah. If I'm bringing drugs, if I'm crossing a national border to bring you drugs while you're on tour for your record. I'm flying first class. What do you, what is this? Yeah. I'd go business, but nothing lower. <laughs> he also, during this same tour would sometimes have to fly to San Antonio to pick up methadone and then come back, which is also an expense you don't expect to incur on tour. The stories I've left a lot of his tour manager but stuff out. They don't out. have methadone in Canada? It's, this is the 80s. Right, it's pro probably very different. I don't know. Methadone gives you hiccups, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it gave me hiccups. I was on it for a while. Mm. Got any more? No, it's not a good drug. It's not fun. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, no, I Adam, like he is methadone. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. I was uh, for a while. Travis, because it's D O N E. Yeah. 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 I, I misunderstood what method acting was. I thought it was methadone acting. And I, <laughs> you thought he was taking the yeah. intro class, method yeah. one. It's method <laughs> yeah. one. Turns out it's not what you use it for. I was, I was, I was ill informed. So, as a result of all this, Steve's family and management decide to stage an intervention, except he's, again, such a charming and charismatic guy that he eventually one person caught wind of it and was like, oh, I got to tell him he's going to hate that so much if they go through with it. And they fucking tipped him off and he let everyone get assembled 
and then called the room they were at and said, there's not going to be an intervention today. That is such like a fucking like saw movie move. <laughs> and it, it, it becomes this weird dynamic where his family is super worried about him, but he's also the main source of support, especially financially in the family. And at one point in the midst of all this, like a, I think, a month or so after they were going to stage this intervention, a judge awards Steve Earl custody of one of his family members, teenage sons thinking, well, that guy's got money. He can get him back on course. And Steve Earl just sent him to like one of those teenage boot camps and wrecked his life. <laughs> oh, gr- oh, great. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, th- there's, there's all that. And, uh, somehow it all coincides with like the absolute commercial peak in his career, because Copperhead Road comes out, sold like crazy. Went quadruple platinum in Canada, which wow. only means 320,000 albums in Canada. That's what quadruple platinum <laughs> means? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Platinum is 80,000 albums in Canada. At least it was at the time. Are there just fewer Canadians, or do they just not like counting high? I think we're one of the only countries that makes it as high as it is. Well, we like, use the English system, and Canada still was, you know, they'd still yeah. do metrics. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> he too. sold four hands high of records. <laughs> what is that in stone? It's about six stone. Okay, okay. Uh, 16 stone. I'm sorry, bush. Mm. I think it's stone sour. It's, it's uh, I, I was going to say Rolling Stones, and then I was like, eh, it's too obvious. I got to do something else. And then I, I forgot the whole Stick thing. Stick that in your Keith Richards bag, Andy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I did. I put it in there. So another career high he has around this time. Well, his sister moves in with him at one point during this and moves her kids in. Because, of course, when you got a raging heroin addict in the family, you're going to want to move all your little tykes in to, to be around that. Uh, but despite that. Another big career high, Steve Earle and the Dukes were chosen to open for Bob Dylan on his 89 stadium tour. Shows went fine, but the band, and especially Steve, were a little put off because at the beginning of the tour, they were told that under no circumstances were they to have any contact with Bob Dylan. And at one point, Steve Earle, they're performing, and Steve Earle cusses a lot in his songs and on stage. And uh, Steve gets this message uh, from Bob Dylan, like through Bob Dylan's people, that uh, Bob Dylan was upset that Steve Earle was cursing so much. And Steve Earle sends a message back to Bob Dylan that says two words, fuck you. And then Bob Dylan started talking to him after that. I, I fucking the, love that story so test. much. That's just the test that Bob Dylan yeah. always like. It's, <laughs> it's just always, you just got to say fuck you to him and hey, your friends. Yeah. So after that tour ended, Steve Earle moved to LA to focus on his drug problem. <laughs> uh, it's a good not, place to do it. Yeah, not like, fixing it, mind he, you. He wanted it to be less of a drug problem and more of a drug career. Yeah. And yeah, because that's when uh, he starts uh, mixing heroin and cocaine together. It's called a speedball. It's what killed John Belushi. Two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah. Chocolate. Peanut butter and sh- <laughs> <laughs> It's the Reese's peanut butter cup of drugs. You got Andy, cocaine I think we're in both- my heroin. <laughs> Didn't that- <laughs> you got heroin in my cocaine. <laughs> this is a quote. I finally got to where heroin didn't do it for me anymore. So I started doing cocaine and heroin. I couldn't not do heroin because not doing heroin means sitting on the toilet and throwing up in the sink. You become really desperately physically ill. And you know, when he puts it that way, yeah, you got to do cocaine with your heroin. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it's come on. 
I'm going to do some cocaine with my heroin when we're done, because now I'm just curious <laughs> about it. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got to try it once just to sure. see what you're capable of surviving, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't want to be closed-minded. No. Yeah, it's a good test. So, again, even though all this is happening creatively, he's doing great. He's He writes his fourth album during all this. It's called The Hard Way. Comes out July 1st, 1990. Even more of a rock record than Copperhead Road in a lot of ways. I like this album a lot, but... When used CD stores were a thing, this was the album you'd always see in the used CD stores. I I do have to say, I remember seeing this album cover a lot at Hastings. It's a weird album cover. He looks like he's a fucking mess. Right. But it is funny that this is the period of time where he's like, yeah, maybe I should do that headshot album cover they've been asking me to do this whole time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He finally does it. And this is the photo. And and I think maybe this is why it didn't sell as well. But it could be. Yeah. If you can't see it, it, it's him holding on to something. But it looks like if you zoom out, it's him clinging to something for dear life is what it looks like. Well, I think it's a train. Because he's wearing like a the, that pinstripe fucking yeah. conductor's hat, so I think it's supposed to be a train. I think the it's, first. I think it's a bridge, and I think he's like, "Do I let go? <laughs> Do I stay? I don't know." Yeah, it's a it's a candid shot. They caught him <laughs> mid suicide attempt. Uh, I love the opening song on this album. Uh, the it's other, called the the other kind. Yeah, it's so good. It's such a great song. It's one of. I think it's up there with. I I love all of the album openers, but I I think this oh, is, yeah. this is up there with like. The, the other songs that I really love of his. I'm hearing it right now in the background. It actually has uh, even the losers get lucky oh, yeah. sometime. It almost sounds like a petty song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, that song is alleged to be about that attempted intervention. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, way more political on this album than his previous stuff. There's a song, there's two anti-death penalty, anti-prison songs, Billy Austin and justice in Ontario. Well, and Billy Austin is also, I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting song because it's a murder ballad. Yeah. It's definitely a murder ballad, but it's, it's also like, he's not doing the like, oh, this guy was falsely accused thing. It's very much a test of if you are against the death penalty, this really makes you fucking examine that position because it's like, yeah, this guy is a psychopath. This, this character murdered someone in cold blood and has like no remorse over it and it's yeah and it's like it really is about it's a it's a challenging song I, I really i like it a lot are we sure that justice in ontario isn't about someone bringing him cough syrup while he's in canada <laughs> no it's actually isn't it? it's about david justice uh <laughs> he has a live album going to ontario came- california sorry i had to finish the i know I'm sorry. I thought I thought you were finished. That's clearly my mistake. Uh, he's got a live album that came out in the mid 2000s called Just an American Boy. And if I'm not mistaken, the version of Billy Austin on that album is like 13 or 14 minutes long. Oh, wow. It's fucking crazy. Well, yeah, you have the band vamp for a while while you go shoot up backstage and then you come yeah. back out and you finish. Yeah. Well, they executed Billy Austin oh, during, nice. good. during that concert. <laughs> I want everyone to clap your hands together while we dim the lights, while we electrocute <laughs> Billy Austin. But yeah, the, this is a really solid album. It didn't get amazing reviews, but uh, it also didn't sell well. So there, you take the good with the bad. Yeah. And he probably didn't realize it at the time, but this was his last studio album for MCA Records. It kind of, I can see that. Like, I will say... 
you know, all this stuff, it is wild that he, you know, he's, his sister's having to buy new spoons because he won't stop cooking heroin in the spoons that she's giving to her fucking kids for breakfast. Right. And, you know, but at the same time, he's <laughs> opening for Bob fucking Dylan. Like, it's it's crazy that he's doing all this, but then like, you listen to the records, and I don't know, man, like, I like a lot of this record, but some of it definitely feels like it was written by cocaine and heroin. Like, it's, they it's don't also, get credited, but the, the, you, yes, you're correct. <laughs> It's also his longest album from this period. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it, I think it, it could have stood to lose a song or two. Yeah, there's a couple songs where it's like, okay, well, this is just repetitive and indulgent. Like, we don't really... Yeah. And I, I, I will say again, like, particularly his songs about love and heartbreak in these later... In these, not later records, obviously, but these last couple where it's just like... Yeah, you're not really saying as much here about this. Like, it feels like you could have just written this down in your diary and called it good. Yeah. Or talked to a therapist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he probably could have used a little therapy in the 80s. I'm going to guess that 80s Steve Earle didn't want to talk to a therapist. I don't think he would have been <laughs> pro that idea. No, probably not. Probably not. And also, like... I realize it's stupid for me to say something like that in retrospect, considering that we're also talking about, you know, the fact that he just said, oh, I can't not do heroin. Oh, yeah. That's a guy who's going to who's going to be proactive about his mental health for sure. I feel yeah, like therapy he, should whip that problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'll easy. do it. I Have feel you like ever tried he, talking, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if he had a therapist, there would just be a phone call the day of the appointment. Oh, there won't be any therapy today. And then it just hangs up and just never shows up. Yeah, I remember reading a quote from Trent Reznor where he was like, I pity the therapist who ends up sitting in front of me someday. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I could see that. Probably be dark. So yeah, this, this what ends if it's up really simple. What if like Trent Reznor's thing is like, I just really wanted to like draw rainbows and no one liked my rainbows. <laughs> well, no one's going to like them now either. Nah, no, so it's, it's still going to be a problem. So yeah, this is his last... Studio it's his last record, last studio album for MCA, and there's a lot of reasons why that comes to be. But I think the most important reason, and uh, I guess we can debate this on the next episode, but I think it's because he started smoking crack at this point huh. in his career. Okay, Is so that... yeah, scratch everything I said about therapy. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know if crack always leads to breaking a record contract, but I'm sure it's a pretty good indicator. <laughs> Like if you yeah. if you were to go through and and like you know find the all the cases of artists breaking a record contract and then you know filter that through artists who also got addicted to crack, there might be some kind of correlation. <laughs> In astronomy, they say when a star starts making iron, it's about to die in supernova. Uh, when a artist starts smoking crack, that's probably the end of their record career. You would think. Well, with and the studio, at least. That's what's interesting about Steve Earle is we're going to talk about his uh, his issues with crack on the next episode, but it's got a mostly happy ending. As dark as this is going to get, it gets good really fast. Too. That's I mean, that's kind of I can't wait because that's rare. That's not you don't. Usually you well, don't say like, oh, he started smoking crack, but it gets better. Yeah. Like take someone like Scott Weiland, for example, oh, Scott oh. Weiland's issues with drugs were very similar to Steve Earle's in that they both ended up going to prison for it for a while. Scott, Scott Weiland was dead by what? 42, 43, wow, yeah. something like that. I outlived Scott Weiland. Did you? Yeah, I want to believe have. he lived to 50, <laughs> but you, you might be right. I think he was. In, well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna. 
Oh, you're going. We're all going to outlive <laughs> Wyland. On a Wyland timeline, we're all doing pretty good. I don't know if I am. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're going to talk about all of that. The craziest detail about Steve Earle to me, he is one of the very few people in history who was cured of his drug addiction by being sent to prison. That never fucking happened. That like straight up never. And I don't, I I don't even want to say that. <laughs> I, don't even, like, I feel yeah. like I feel like it's irresponsible to say that. That's that well, even he cured somebody of it. Even he comes out of prison like, look, I'm not the fucking like prison still sucks. Yeah. Like I'm the exception. That's not how it normally works. He's like, you get, I'm like a rich musician, right? So I had a lot to live for. Like, he's not going back to a fucking life on the streets and no job prospects, no life prospects. Yeah. He's still Steve Earle when he gets out of prison and everyone still wants to work with him. So, yeah. yes, he he overcame drugs in prison, but big asterisk. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like- I feel <laughs> That's like an asterisk. <laughs> next to his addiction recovery he's, that's he's the barry bonds of drug addiction <laughs> recovery no but i mean it is it is true at least as far as like what we we're gonna say about the you know prison industrial complex is concerned is that like you know i feel like if everybody had what he had coming out then maybe you know yeah 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 but obviously that's not the case and prison still is a terrible idea and he, entirely he acknowledges that yeah. too he's he didn't come out of prison and be like why can't you junkies be like me <laughs> yeah, he just suddenly <laughs> he just suddenly turns into a reaganite when he gets out yeah all of yeah. a sudden he's like i'm gonna start making prisons and he just like starts <laughs> <laughs> this next song's called copperhead prison <laughs> yeah that's that's one of the things we're not really touching on much that is covered in this book pretty extensively, which is his activism regarding the death penalty and uh, especially the death penalty. That's where the author of this book met Steve Earle was yeah. at a function for the uh, anti-death penalty group. They're both a part of. So uh, yeah, definitely like we're, we're talking about all the scandal, but read this book. You'll see there's, <laughs> there's a few sides to Steve Earle and I'm not going to say all of them are good, but uh, the, uh, like his his heart is definitely in the right place yeah. when it comes to politics. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like I always felt like, you know, that through his songs and just what I knew about him in general, it's like, oh, yeah, me and this dude, I think we believe the same things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just still shocked that, again, my way into knowing who he is is through his character acting work. And it was like, oh, no, this guy's actually a really talented musician and, and songwriter. Oh, really? I should. Holy shit. Like, just I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, I think I actually started listening to Steve Earle before I started watching The Wire. So when he popped up on The Wire, I was like, oh, fuck. I know that Steve guy. Yeah. I had heard of him and I had probably heard songs of his without really being aware of it. I knew yeah. the name. Obviously, I was familiar with the name. But I don't think I ever like truly got into his music before seeing him on the, you know, and this yeah. is my first time really listening to any of these records, like all the way through in their entirety, multiple times, you know, same. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for when we get to talk about the Revolution Starts Now album. I don't know if either of you have listened to yeah. that yet, but mm -hmm. it, that is that's one of my favorite Steve Earle albums. It is one of the most over the top anti Bush <laughs> records to come out during the Iraq war. It's got a fucking love song to Condoleezza Rice on it, like a mocking yeah. love song. Not like it's got a song called Fuck the FCC, where the chorus is just fuck the FCC, fuck the FBI, fuck the CIA. He gets radical. 
in his in his uh, later years. You don't say. It's yeah, it's going to be good stuff. But until then, that's the end of the sode. What? Do we uh do we have anything to plug before we get out of here? Andy. Andy, plug something, Andy. What do you what? need to plug? Uh, uh, is there mustard? Um <laughs> I have a couple podcasts. Uh, obviously, you probably I want to say obviously, maybe you've never heard of me before. I don't give a shit. I mean Who are you? Who am I? I'm nobody. I don't do shit. Except two podcasts in addition to this one called Ghoul School Horror History Podcast and Look Good for the Boys. Look Good for the Boars? That's not what it's called. It's called Look Good for the Boys, a horror gossip podcast. They're both about horror movies. What a big fucking surprise. Check them out. I want to check. I, I want to plug my podcast, Look Good for the Boars. Yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, it's a wild hog gossip <laughs> podcast where we talk about uh, feral hogs, mm-hmm. which are a big problem in the yeah. South. So uh, Adam and I uh, each week talk about uh, Razorbacks and what a problem they are. And um, yep. Yep. Um, really, you know, especially on Catalina, where um, uh, pigs were brought over for the farm, but have been left to go wild. And now there's just all these wild boars on the uh, Channel Islands of uh, California. That's where me and Travis met. That's where we a, met. And we met at a, a rally. At a, yeah. An at, a, at a boar rally. Yeah. rally. <laughs> Anti-abortion. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we have fun here. All right. Should we get out of here? Yes. Travis, say goodbye. Goodbye. Good boar. And Andy, say good boar. <laughs> good boar. <laughs> goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs>